HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Dine in Brooklyn is a 10-day event featuring restaurants in the greatest borough on planet Earth. Learn more at dineinbk.com and discover the best of Brooklyn's restaurants Monday, March 20th through Thursday, March 30th. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome, everyone, to The Line. We're here broadcasting live from Heritage Radio Network Studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and I'm excited to welcome my guest today. Spike Jerdy is a chef, restaurateur, and local food advocate based in Baltimore. He runs Woodbury Kitchen, Artifact Coffee, Bird in Hand, Parts in Labor, Grand Crew, and they have a canning operation called Woodbury Pantry. He's a busy guy. They have a new hotel project opening soon that we'll talk about. In 2015, Spike became the first and only Baltimore chef to bring home the James Beard Foundation Award for Best Chef Mid-Atlantic. So we have a wonderful amount of diverse food operations to cover today. I want to dive right in and start talking about your working relationship with your brother, because that's of interest (laughs) to me because my business partner is my brother. So... I want to jump all the way back to Spike and Charlie's. So you opened it in 1991, and then you went on to open a few other restaurants together. I'm curious, uh, are any of those spots still around? How was it working with your brother? And how did you originally end up teaming up with your brother way back in the day? Wow. Um, first answer, no. Those, um, <laughs> all of those establishments are um, now under different owners and operators mm-hmm. um, but it was a great time for us and um, we decided I you know the thought process behind it is now lost <laughs> if there was one it's uh, it's it's lost to the sands of time because we just decided to, to open a restaurant I mean there was I guess some morning we used to play restaurant you know we didn't play we used to play restaurant when we were kids and so we opened a restaurant when I don't know. The time seemed right. So when you say play restaurant, what does that we, even consist? It was of? actually the best business model I'd ever had because my <laughs> our parents would buy the ingredients, and then we would do the restaurant, and then they would pay us <laughs> to eat there. And so we we had the best food costs uh, of my life. 
uh, in those those early days. Yeah, um, it's great just to have all the burden of uh, of cogs go on to the purchaser. Yes. There you go. I got to bring that back because that, that really <laughs> you can get people to yeah, do Yeah, just quadruple all your prices. Yes. It's pretty much the same model. Yeah. So uh, you and your brother opened up Spike and Charlie's, and was that in the Baltimore area? That was right downtown Baltimore. We were across the street from the Symphony Hall. So it was a magical time where we both learned you know, we both learned the restaurant business. And so how did you, you were born in Iowa and you moved to Baltimore when you were a young kid, when you were six years old. Do you have any young childhood memories of, of Iowa? And, uh, what are your initial memories like of moving to Baltimore? I imagine it's a pretty jarring move for you and the family. It was, it, yeah, it was, you know, it was, a. my dad moved us uh, for work and, um, he was at Procter and Gamble and moved to work in the um, the, the factory that that still is there, but is now Under Armour's world headquarters. So that's kind of cool. Has an amazing new life in that in that um, in that part of the city. Um, it was you know I was a kid. Most of my memories of of Iowa were of snow. <laughs> and, uh, I don't have many memories of snow in Baltimore, but um, it it wasn't you know it just felt like it's what you did. We mm-hmm. moved and. Uh, you know, we didn't. I w- I'm not from a farm. I mean, there's that obvious kind of farm connection, and where I ended up was very much um, connected to farms again. But it wasn't. I don't think it had an Iowa kind of angle. So you went sort of like from suburb to suburb to yeah, a certain extent. Very much. And so when you ended up in Baltimore, I'm curious about what uh, what was food like growing up? Did you have a? I know you said you you played restaurant, but I mean, like, did your family have a close connection to food based on, you know, your family's roots and where they came from or anything like that? No, we, you know, I, I, I'm definitely not, that's not my story. And I, you know, I said that once and I'm always kind of a little, uh, slightly hesitant to say, like, I did not learn to cook, you know, at the, you know, at my grandma's knee. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we enjoyed food as a family, but you know, my dad had his specialty, which was, uh, you know, Sunday soup. Uh, my mom had a couple of things that she did, but we, I wouldn't, characterize us as a food family it's something i kind of i don't know where the gene came from but yeah it's interesting you know i get people on the show and they they follow obviously different trajectories but there seems to be like the grandmother anecdote and then there seems to be like i don't know i fell into it kind of out of nowhere um so i know that you went to um to middlebury college and i am really interested because you studied philosophy and chinese so that to me seems like a very uh, relaxed, structured, uh, you know, there's some, maybe some Buddhism or ancient Chinese thought process that goes into those studies. And obviously philosophy is a deep intellectual pursuit. Are you, is, are, are those the type of things that have helped define your career choices and your, and, and also your leadership style? Because I, I I picture you being a very patient, relaxed person <laughs> who went to a liberal arts school in Vermont and chilled out pretty hard uh, studying philosophy. Yeah, I don't know. No, I'm trying to do my old Vermont, um, my Vermont voice. But um, no, it was the place. Well, the philosophy in Chinese, I think, were that's what I wanted to, to, to read in school, and I did. Um, Chinese at Middlebury is not is not very chill. It's pretty intense, and that's kind of what I was looking for. But at the same time, that's where I really started. The thing that happened for me in Middlebury, that's where I started to think about food in a different way. And I think it was only later that I was able to kind of reconnect what I had studied, just thinking about things the way you do when you're, when you're reading philosophy and applying that to what I was doing. That came later. Uh, what I did 
start doing in Vermont was I started, I worked at a bakery at night, you know, in between Chinese philosophy and whatever else was going on. I would show up at this little, cool little bakery um, and start baking at midnight and then uh, bribe my teachers with fresh bread, you know, when I rolled up a little late the next morning. And that was where I think those seeds got planted. The other thing that happened is after I graduated, I hung around Vermont for the summer and I worked on a dairy farm. And that was as transformative as anything that happened to me. I hate to say it, you know, for the four years that I was, uh, was uh, in school. And that's, I think if, if anything kind of pointed me down a path, it was those three months um, on Joseph Severy's dairy farm in Cornwall, Vermont, that, that did it. But why is that? Why was it such a powerful experience for you? Was it the, was it the interaction with the product? Was it the, the hard physical labor? What really brought you around when you were working there? It was, um, it was a sense. For me, it was, this, this, it was something I could articulate for the first time in my life that I was part of the landscape. I connected to the land there. Um, you know, I had this sense as, as I was working out in the field and, you know, one day I was just out there, I was collecting bales of hay that had fallen off of a cart and this big camper came by tourists, right in Vermont and they slowed down. And I thought like, I'm part of this landscape. And that was just like, that was, that was something I never forgot. And, you know, when you think about the way that we think about our food, our sourcing, our connection to, to growers and our food system, our agricultural economy, that's the thing that kind of carries through. Some tourist immortalized you as, a, <laughs> as an actual <laughs> farmer. There's a farm kid out there. And You're I like, I've only been working here six days. Exactly. They, uh, they thought they had seen a true, authentic I, thing. I think I look the part, for sure. What's, uh, what's a dairy farm like in Vermont? Uh, so this is, in, is this in the late 80s, early 80s about, or when you're... Mid-80s. Mid-80s. Yeah. So what's it, what's it look like? I, I imagine that the... I mean, the dairy industrial complex in our country has obviously changed dramatically. So uh, was it a large dairy processing farm? Were you one of five employees? I was the only one. Employees? In oh, fact, okay. I was like a part. I was a summer employee. He had sold um, some heifers and got enough money to hire me to do some chores and work over the summer. And when the summer ended, I left and, and he was back on his own. And we milked about 40 cows which means there was about 60 cows on the farm. Um, a lot of my work was around hay. We were haying and um, baling hay and, and putting hay up in the loft and took care of the cows in the morning and the afternoon. Um, did, you, uh, did he sell it at farmer's markets? He sold it to co-op. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, even then we was thinking about organic. Even then he was, um, you know, trying to diversify a little bit. He was thinking about getting into maple syrup. And even then, some of the, the farmers around him and the farms that had been traditionally been dairy farms there in Addison County were getting out of it uh, because it was a commodity thing and they were at the mercy of the commodity market. And a lot of them were getting into were planting Christmas trees. It's an incredibly difficult business to be in back then, even more so now to be a, a small provider of anything. But dairy is extremely difficult if you don't have... 10,000 cows right. and an uh, industrial milking machine and all the things that come along no, with being able to store and temp milk properly. Absolutely. And, you know, I didn't know what I was really seeing at that time, but everything I've learned since then, you know, confirmed how hard it was to do what he was doing. And, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, trying to be a small-scale farmer in a commodity world is a tough road to go. 
So before we jump fully ahead to your embrace of this, obviously in your own restaurant. So you are spending time in Vermont. My assumption is that always people in Vermont have cared a lot about the land and that they make specific decisions that are not necessarily even informed by economics, but also just like being present with their neighbors and their connection to kind of the, the land. So you got to see that firsthand working on the dairy farm and then you're baking. What's the next move for you? Do you stay in Vermont or where, where did you head after that? Uh, I think you know, with a philosophy degree in hand. Um, <laughs> you were wildly employable with <laughs> exactly. your philosophy degree and your work experience on a dairy farm. Yeah, there was pretty much a one-way, it was a one-way ticket into the restaurant <laughs> industry. I, or, yeah, it, was, um, it wasn't clear the way forward, and so I came back to Baltimore, um, and I was literally walking down the street, unemployed, and walked past a, a pastry shop that had just opened, a French pastry shop in Baltimore, which was kind of a, you know, this is, again, late 80s at this point, and um, just stopped in, and first, I made the mistake of asking if they had any day-old, you know, I was still in student mode, and, and they looked at me like, get out of here, and then I was <laughs> like, well, are, are you hiring? You know, this is like the worst um, one-two punch ever, so... yeah. Um, they said, bring back a resume. This is a place called Patisserie Poupon that is still there. And that was my first real, that was where it started for me with, with cooking and being in a professional kitchen. Um, and what did they have you doing when you first got hired? Well, it was, I, I came back, I actually brought a resume back and they said, well, that's what we do to keep people from, you know, <laughs> and, I, and they said, all right, you know, come back at 4 a.m. tomorrow. And the look on my face, they just both started, it was a husband and wife and they're still near and, and dear to me. And they, they started laughing. They said, oh, vacation's over. And uh, I came back the next day at four and, um, you know, started doing, making doughs. Just, you know, I was a small, it was a small French pastry shop and I was the first hire and um, we did we did everything. We've had bakers on the program before, and a lot of them discuss how they enjoy the. It's a solitary pursuit. A lot of the time, you're in a room by yourself late at night. Everyone else is sleeping. Did you enjoy that? Did you find it freeing or lonely or something else? I just love being in that kitchen. I loved working with Joseph, who was the chef, the pastry chef. Um, I didn't find it. I did do shifts on my own, but as often as not, we were working together and I was learning, you know, every single second that I was in that kitchen, I was learning as any, any, anybody that's in a kitchen for the first time. How, how good do you think it is for young people who are getting into cooking to, uh, spend time baking? There's a lot of precision there, right? You're following either large scale recipes or at least where you're often weighing things out. It's not as free as perhaps other cooking experiences. Do you think that that uh, contributed anything to then going on and opening up your own place? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, had, a, I had this funny sense that I was going to be in restaurants. I mean, restaurants are what I wanted to do. The baking part was something I loved doing, an aspect of that. And what, for me, what I loved about it and that, that experience and what I got from it was sense of craft, uh, certain techniques that are, are, are kind of old school, but um, you know, using a piping bag, um, being able to ice a cake, um, things that still, you know, occasionally come in handy. And, uh, and I think that's informed. I like cooking that has a little bit of structure to it. I don't like a pile of this on the plate with a little protein on top. And that's kind of like, 
which, you know, that's a million ways to think. But I like a tortilla on the plate. I like, you know, I like to use um, things that are baked. I love great baking. I think the texture that you get from baking is like, that's like sometimes good baking to me is like about texture and balance. And if you can bring that to your cooking, you're, you're doing something right. I always am disheartened to go to a wonderful restaurant and find that the bread has an afterthought. Ugh. It's a, uh, for me, it's, I think it's like the biggest mistake that anyone can make. They toss some free bread your way and it starts off the meal on a really weird note. And then if you order anything involving bread, it, it used to be secondary. Now I think restaurants are really focusing on that and they're focusing more on where they obtain their yep. wheat from yes. and their, uh, you know, they're milling on site and things yep. of that nature. Yep. That is something that you're very interested in and that you have been at the forefront of in Baltimore. Can you tell a little bit about how you have found so many wonderful purveyors and how you how you've organized that around your operation and integrated them into the sort of the Woodbury family of of restaurants? It really started. It was back with my brother through the, you know, what I lovingly referred to as the Spike and Charlie's era was at least it was for us uh-huh. <laughs> anybody else looked. anyway so that was the that those were the years that I was starting to connect with growers in our area I was starting to connect the dots you know again back to my my um, uh, my I don't want to say training but you know going to school for philosophy I started to think about things and started to understand it and I think in a, in a little different way and that built up to opening Woodbury in 2007 um, so I already knew a lot of the farmers that I wanted to work with. I already was working with them. And um, it, it, you know, Woodbury kind of came into being with this idea, we're going to work with these growers. We're not going to have a, quote, concept that we have to, you know, we have to fulfill. We're going we're gonna to make this about this kind of transactional relationship, this economic relationship with these farmers. And then we found out, then we had to figure out how to do it. So in terms of the actual sourcing, I mean, I think the obvious uh, ingredients that people assume you pull from the Chesapeake Bay area is going to be seafood. But beyond the seafood connection, can you talk about a couple of your favorite products that you integrate into Woodbury or one of your other locations that's sort of like an indigenous product from the area that doesn't travel very far that you've just found like a, a brilliant representation of it in very close to where you are? I think the thing that I end up talking I think that a product that kind of illustrates that really well is the fish pepper. Uh, fish pepper is a, is a spicy little chili that had definitely played a role in the culinary, um, in the foodways of the, of, the, um, of the Chesapeake in the 1800s. Uh, Michael Twitty and William Moyes Weaver have both written about it. Um, and so I, I kind of came across it in their writing and then started to ask found out that there were seed available, uh, mostly due to William Moyes Weaver, and started to ask farmers if they would grow it. And um, one day a guy came up to me and said, you looking for fish pepper? It was like that kind of, you know. I've got fish pepper. Yeah, <laughs> I, got, I got some fish pepper. I got a lot of fish peppers yeah. that I need to move. You right. want to use them? And we, uh, we literally jumped in the car, and this was a guy that was growing, uh, had an urban farm, and that was the first time I saw and tasted fish pepper. And... Um, the, the rest uh, kind of grew from there, but that's a good example. That was a, a something that, that I came across that I think, you know, really had roots in um, in, in our region. And now we've taken it. We make our, a hot sauce from it. We make, um, you know, we make our own kind of chili powder with it. We pickle it, 
and it really it adds a lot of heat and flavor. So you did some deep studying of the actual region, looking back and seeing what things were in that area and that perhaps had fallen by the wayside and had uh, fallen out of uh, popularity. I'm also interested in the actual physical space that you developed for Woodbury Kitchen. So uh, can you explain to the listeners that have never been there? So it's in Clipper Mill, and the building's beautiful. I've been there. I've eaten there. And how did you even find the space, and uh, how did you develop it into a restaurant? So it was um, friends of mine were um, kind of – Clipper Mill is this amazing – you're exactly right. It's this incredible old mill, um, complex, really, with various buildings, uh, some of which – uh, were and are occupied by craftspeople and, and workshops and ateliers, and some of which are apartments. And there was one kind of space left in the middle of it, and they had thought it could be a cafe. Um, some of my friends were already... Uh, my best friend had a, a workshop there, and um, so it was appealing just to say, well, I'm going to take the restaurant next door. And uh, again, that much thought really went into it. I love the location. I got a lot of support uh, from the guy that was developing it to, to build it out. Um, which I needed at the time, and we were off to the races. So this becomes the second time that you've gone through the process of of starting a, for lack of a better term, we'll call it a restaurant group. It was your, it became your your first second project. Uh, how much did you feel confident in 2007 when you opened Woodbury? Uh, not, since you had gone through the process with your brother of opening up restaurants before, did it feel? brand new and terrifying or did you feel like this was a second coming and you were so ready to to do it uh i was ready but it, it was there was a um i mean the other aspect of of clipper is that it's it's kind of it's not easy to find it's kind of down of you kind of have to get lost before you get before you find it it's a and, destination restaurant <laughs> <laughs> if that could be yeah i don't know if that if we have those in baltimore but um so there, there was a, there was a little bit of I don't know if terrified, but uh, there was some anxiety to get that thing going, and then to not really know how to do what we wanted to do, and to to not really know if anybody was going to show up. How far away is it from like Baltimore proper? Say um, a drive. Like if you if you're in the harbor, which is kind of for you know in Baltimore, a lot of people orient themselves from the inner harbor. Um, it's about five miles north. Um, Baltimore as it grew, kind of grew from that the harbor and that central kind of area up in our case up industrial it grew up this little valley, river valley which is very cool which is where we are which is why the mills are there um and we're kind of straight north up that little valley and so when you opened up uh woodbury you partnered with your wife yeah and uh i'm curious about her background and and what do both of you at that time not specifically today what were your responsibilities were you actually on on the line cooking for service and what was her role in woodbury she you know i was in the kitchen and she basically did everything else um when the restaurant opened um we um and i wouldn't recommend anyone to try this at home but I worked the front of the oven, which was kind of my spot. We have this incredible wood-burning oven, built-in-place masonry oven, and she expedited. And that's where it started. That's how we started. And that's um, uh, those were amazing, you know, especially as it got busier and we started to get our, our, our feet underneath us. It was an amazing time. What was uh, her previous experience like expediting? Because Woodbury's pretty big, right? Yeah. We, we weren't doing... 
you know, some of the numbers we do now. Mm-hmm. But we got there. But um, it's about 100. In, in, inside, we're around 110 seats. We could have 30 when it's nice out. And, um, but we, we kind of grew into, into doing more covers. So back then, it, it felt stressful. And, you know, when I do 120 off, that, off the front of the oven, I end up, like, curled up in a ball at, at the end of the night. Um, but, sorry, I lost my... What was your... Oh, I was just about you and your wife and launching Woodbury. Yeah. So, she, you know, she was there and, and we, we did it every night, just, just figured it out. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back more with Spike, owner of Woodbury Kitchen in Baltimore. Dine in Brooklyn is a 10-day event featuring restaurants in the greatest borough on planet Earth. Taking place Monday, March 20th through Thursday, March 30th, Dine in Brooklyn is celebrating the five-star flavors that make Brooklyn a must-taste destination. From the Asian-inspired flavors at Nightingale 9 in Carroll Gardens to classic barbecue at Mabel's Smokehouse in Williamsburg, the Brooklyn restaurant scene is something for everyone. Unwind with a bottle of vino at Soigne Restaurant and Wine Bar in Park Slope, Dream of summer at Clementi's Crab House in Sheepshead Bay, or be transported to a Gothic Irish monastery while drinking a Guinness in hand at the Wicked Monk in Bay Ridge. Restaurants are offering their choice of $28 prefix three-course dinners, $15 two-course lunches, or $12 weekend brunch. Visit DineInBK.com to view all of the participating restaurants and their menus. Make your reservations now to discover the diversity of flavors that Brooklyn has to offer. Dine-In Brooklyn is taking place Monday, March 20th through Thursday, March 30th. Learn more at DineInBK.com. Welcome back to The Line. I'm here with Spike Jurdy. He's the chef, restaurateur, owner of Woodbury Kitchen, Artifact Coffee, Bird in Hand, Parts and Labor, Grand Crew, and Woodbury Pantry, located in the Baltimore area. We were talking about his early career partnering with his brother, and in 2007, with his wife, he opened Woodbury Kitchen, uh, a wonderful restaurant in Clipper Mill, and since then, you've been on a tear, so... (laughs) It seems like every year you're opening up a spot now. And so let's just quickly rattle them off and then we'll go back and talk about them. In 2012, you opened up Artifact Coffee. 2014, you opened Parts and Labor, which is a whole animal butcher shop and also a restaurant. In 2016, you worked on a bookshop cafe, which you co-own with a couple other partners. And then you've got a hotel project in the works. And then you've got the canning operation. Okay, that's insane. Let's now go backwards and try to unpack a little bit of this. Uh, So let's start in 2012. You were like, all right, the restaurant is going well. Um, I want to move on to another project. I'm curious, are you super obsessed with coffee? Uh, I find that people that get in the coffee game, uh, it's so competitive and – 
people discuss coffee now in the way that they discuss a wonderful glass of wine. And prices are actually creeping up yeah. to that level as well. So tell me a little bit about your passion for coffee and what uh, Artifact Coffee does maybe that other places in Baltimore weren't doing or why you decided to get involved in the coffee world. It was, um, it was a macchiato. You know, we'd always had coffee in the restaurants, my brother and I, and I think we, we, we tried. What, what, what can you say? It was a macchiato in, in San Francisco. It was a little blue bottle pop-up at the farmer's market, and I just had this moment. Like, a lot of us who have, you know, have had moments like that with coffee, found, I feel a little funny talking about it even. But So we had this moment and came back, and we actually uh, got excited about coffee and, and opened an artifact. We called it Artifact, and it was in a side room of where Woodbury is. And as we built out the restaurant, we operated this little coffee shop just to kind of tide us over um, until Woodbury got going. And that was Artifact in 2006, 2007. Um, And we were among the first, I think, to really kind of try to do what other people were doing with coffee, but do it in Baltimore. You know, the the coffee I had in San Francisco, stuff that was happening in New York. um, that's, That's where it started. And then had this, and then rolled kind of artifact and that approach to coffee into the restaurant, which is kind of a new thing, not only for Baltimore, but you know we were talking about how bread, you know, sometimes can 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 take down a, a really nice dining experience. And coffee was doing the same thing for me. You know, a lot of places that were paying attention to other things were like just coffee was kind of a, th- a throwaway. And so we 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 were among the first, I think, to have a barista making coffee in the restaurant. And then. You're right. You know, it took five years really for us to kind of get our feet under us. And then we opened Artifact again, just up the road. Do you roast beans there? Where, what are you, what are you doing at at Artifact now? And do you have any plans to do another one? So the idea with Artifact was to take, and one of the things I love about it is we take everything that we do at Woodbury, the entire approach around sourcing, and we translated that to, I think, what is an understandable, accessible coffee shop experience. So the menu is essentially soup salad sandwich, uh, but all of those things are, you know, are locally sourced. All, a lot of those things are our own kind of manufacture, breads, uh, uh, meats, um, pastries. And um, it was just, a, for me, it was just, A, I love coffee shops, and B, I wanted to do something with the food that we were working with at Woodbury that was not Woodbury. And that was, and you know, hopefully bring it to a different price point, a different kind of experience, and that's what we did. An artifact is, you know, a kitchen about the size of the studio, and we do everything that we do at Woodbury there. Just so you all know, listening, this is a very small studio. <laughs> uh, so it seems like there is a vertical integration that's taking place, which is you are finding all these things that you want to do, and uh, they're interacting with all the other businesses. So then you move on to open up Parts and Labor, which is a whole animal butcher shop. Was there is there a roadmap? Were you thinking to yourself, all right, we've got a restaurant. It's successful, and it's great. Now let's focus on coffee. All right, now let's tackle a, a butcher shop. Like, were these things in... T- intentionally opened in a series of uh of years or did it just um there was a necessity and you thought let's go for it how much planning actually goes into uh these places several years in advance i think starting with parts and labor is where we 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 had identified what needed to happen for us to grow and to continue to support our growers and to continue to kind of scale you know like you said earlier we're kind of living in this commodity world and we were trying to make our way in that world. And 
with parts and labor, that's where we started to take steps to do that. So what parts and labor for me really represented was our ability to work with meat in the way that we were doing it at Woodbury, whole animal butchery, a lot of production, trying to drive value and drive value back to small scale producers. Um, And it was going to become a bottleneck for us if we didn't find a way to do more of it. So, you know, the point being that, you know, if I wanted to do another artifact, there was just only so much we could do, so much roast beef and, and, and sausage that we could make at Woodbury to supply other places. So parts and labor was that place. And, you know, it's really, it's a very cool little butcher shop. It's a, it's a cool little restaurant, but at, at its heart, and what it mainly is, is a production butchery. So from then, you go on to open up Bird in Hand. And so I, I have to be honest, your opening rate is, is pretty astonishing. It's like once you've gotten, once you got going, you really got going here. So, um, you know, I, I, I know you're going to say you've got incredible partners and that you've got a wonderful staff. But, like, let's just really dig beneath that a little bit. How do you sustain this growth? Do you have um, – business mentors that you and your wife can reach out to you? Do you have uh, investors that help navigate this terrain? Because you have 250 employees now, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you're not a wonderful little husband-wife restaurant anymore. You're a fairly large company that is on the move. So um, how do you maintain your leadership and also how do you um, maintain the organization of your entire sprawling operation? I think what's been essential to our growth is we've been able to attract people um, who get what it is that's happening at Woodbury and feel that it's important, our, our relationship to our food and how it works and how this company does it. And they're the ones that are kind of powering us to this to this next level. And it's growth. It's not like it's not like open a location. You know what underlies a lot of the, the places that have opened recently is the fact that we're doing a lot of this preservation and canning. Um, we're 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 doing our own juices now, um, so that we can support. So that everything we do going down the road, where we are now and where we get to, is going to be supportive of local ag. I mean, it all comes back to that. Ineluctably for us, it comes back to local ag, the landscape, and. That will never change. And luckily, I have amazing people around me. You're right. I'm going to mention these partners who are, you know, helping push us forward, who get it and are about it. And, you know, it's every single person that cooks at Woodbury, but it's also it's Hannah Reagan, it's Corey Paloka, it's Opie Crooks. It's these amazing people um, that work in, in all aspects of our business that are that are making it possible. How much crossover is there between businesses? Is there like a manager meeting where everyone from like the top person at each spot, like either a chef or a front of house person gets together and exchange ideas or anything? Are they siloed a little bit and you're the go between? Uh, How much interaction is there between a place like uh, the canning operation and uh, say parts and labor? Well, the it's. That's a great question. They're, they are siloed as far as, as them being restaurants, but there is this underlying network that we've created that's baking, that's, that's uh, processing and preserving, and that's, that's meat. Uh, and those things are like, that's a network. And those things inform and supply each other. So we've got this cool little network that's, that, you know, we've got this little truck that kind of goes between uh, – canning shed where you know where we do our preserving that goes to um parts and labor and that goes to woodbury where we still bake and that is kind of the connection and that's all based on you know the local ingredients that we use we can't find i'd be buying bread if if there was somebody in baltimore that was baking 
you know, with 100% locally grown and milled grains. But it's not happening, so we're baking bread. I love that. When you can't find it, you got it pushes you to yeah. do it yourself. Uh, so the canning operation, that sounds pretty cool. Are you doing anything with that that's uh, like a wholesale or like business-to-business distribution? Do you have little, like, uh, are there any shops or uh, cafes that sell your canned goods? Or is it all used in-house at the restaurants? So it all started to supply ourselves. And uh, lately we've gotten into doing more retail sizes because we wanted to be able to, you know, the jam that we use at Woodbury um, that we that we put up in the summertime, uh, we wanted to be able to sell that retail. So we now do that. Um, our whole economic model is a little different. And so for restaurant operators, our products are a little pricey, we found. We intercompany them, so we, we move them around and, and we actually buy them. You know, Woodbury will buy it from, uh, will buy jam from Canning Shed. The first, our first foray into getting a product out there that, that other, other people want to work with, both retail and wholesale, is we co-pack some tomatoes, some Maryland-grown tomatoes for the first time last summer. And that's in number 10 cans and 28-ounce cans for supermarkets. Um, and that is finding some, some traction in the... How, how is that branded, though? Is that branded as Woodbury Kitchen no, Tomatoes? Those are Spikes Tomatoes. Okay, Spikes Tomatoes. <laughs> And, you know, my brother, to his uh, yeah, ever- another project. Sure. Yeah. And my brother, to his everlasting credit, is is one of our customers. So I'm very proud to be selling tomatoes to my brother. In and what he's, capacity? He's buying them and using them in his spots. Oh, OK, cool. Yeah. So he's got his own spots yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. OK. Uh, and so the um, the the overall kind of continuation of all these projects is that I assume that somewhere you're thinking about not only what the next project is going to be, but where internal growth can come from. What is something uh, sort of removed from the, the hotel project? What is uh, something that you see in the next, say, two to five years for you that you're really excited about potentially growing larger? The baking for us. You know, the, the Mid-Atlantic is – I think of the Mid-Atlantic was kind of the, as the breadbasket for, you know, a, a very young country. Going back, you know, after we had independence um, – and this country was, you know, kind of finding its way. And the Mid-Atlantic was where a lot of the grain was produced. Baltimore as a port, you know, came into its own, not because of tobacco, which wasn't really shipped from the port of Baltimore, but because of wheat. And, you know, wheat was what replaced um, tobacco as, as kind of a cash crop in our region uh, in the early 1800s. And Baltimore as a port kind of grew up as, as, a, as a shipping point for wheat and flour so we had a lot of mills and even baked goods. Um, I want to bring, I kind of want to restore that part of our food economy, which is based on growing and milling small grains, which we don't see very much of. And we, we're going to bake with that, and that's going to be huge for us. I'm curious about the dynamics that you have with uh, all the workers at your restaurant. Uh, you were well ahead of the curve in embracing uh, locality and and sourcing. And now one of the big things that restaurants are dealing with is uh, the business side of it from the aspects of uh, raise the wage. And there's been a lot of discussion about tipping. And now with the current administration, we're talking about sanctuary restaurants and something that kitchens never discussed 20 years ago, which was a safe place uh, physically and mentally for your employees. So um, as one of the leaders of your entire operation, I'm curious, how are you, your wife and the other um, 
folks at the top addressing some of these uh, employee-related issues that are really sort of like hot-button hot topics right now? Um, we're concerned. I'm, we're concerned. We're worried. You know, Baltimore, um, it's funny. I, I can go back. I remember a time when there weren't immigrants working in kitchens in Baltimore. When I started, there, weren't, there wasn't um, an immigrant presence in kitchens in Baltimore. And now they're, now they're an integral part of, of, of our world. And I'm concerned about what's going to happen. And we're talking to we're talking to lawyers. We're talking to um, um, advocates and trying to understand, you know, what could happen and what we need to do to be ready. Um, you know, I would say I was kind of I thought when we had a day without immigrants a couple of weeks ago, and I thought that was a that was a brilliant day. And, and, and you know, what I heard from people in my industry was a little confusing because a lot of them said we're closing in solidarity with our you know with our and i thought that's kind of missing the point and kind of misrepresenting what's happening here because you know what we we should have said and and what i thought should have been the message is we're closing because we can't operate without these folks and i thought it, it kind of took the, the you know the, the powerful uh, message that was being asserted there was watered down by the people who were trying to be you know kind of supportive and i think that's you know when we understand if you if, if you know anything about food you know, how it's grown, how it's processed, how it gets to your table, sometimes like literally to your table, you know that, that, that it takes a lot of hands, a lot of people. And a lot of those in our case and in, in many others are, are recent or, you know, we're multi-generational now in our, in our restaurants with uh, folks that have worked with us for years. And, and now their sons and daughters are working with us is amazing. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Spike, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, everyone, if you're in the Baltimore area, there's multiple places that you can check out what they're doing. They are doing things right and embracing uh, the local, uh, the land and the people and the purveyors and the providers. Uh, check out Woodbury Kitchen and all their other restaurants. Spike, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Join us every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for The Line here on Heritage Radio. For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.